Patrick. Peter Michaels. Patrick Bateman. We're doing it again, are we? Another episode of The Road, The Stage. How fun. Uh, people need to continue to smash that subscribe button. Get aggressive with it. Like, really, just literally pound out your aggressions, take the frustrations of the day, mm-hmm. allow us to kind of be a little bit of that relief, mm-hmm. but then just smash subscribe. I think, I think my own grandmother actually subscribed to the Bose Barn Stage YouTube page. So Get out of here. I don't want to say that's a sign of what you should do, but it is. Of it course totally your grandmother is. is cool enough to be able to know how to do that. She she is. Also, um, yeah, make sure you follow us on our social media, The Road, The Stage, wherever you may find us, pretty much everywhere but TikTok and Vine doesn't exist anymore, right? How soon do we get into TikTok? Like, I mean, eventually. <laughs> anyway, so today's guest... Um, uh, this is this is a, a really cool one because you have a pretty big historied histor historied historic historied hmm. I think historied works but anyways you you've known this guy for a long time yes we are very historied yes uh, incredibly historied and um, uh, his name is Kurt Dahl why why don't you tell us about Kurt a little bit well there's so much to tell about Kurt he's uh, an accomplished drummer and musician yep. in One Bad Son mm-hmm. with several top 10 hits and a number one song. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very well-established and well-known lawyer in the entertainment field. Yes. Uh, he's like president of the Sask Music. Which is organiz- incredible. Like, I didn't know that until just the other day. It's crazy. This is yeah. uh, this is a pretty smart dude and uh, just a rock guy at heart as well. And I've yeah known him for probably about eight years and uh, enjoy every single chance I get. So uh, this is actually going to be one of my first times talking to Kurt. So I'm excited and... Um... I hope you guys don't have too many inside jokes that make me feel left out. It's going to be a lot of Jack Daniels talk coming up. All right, well, you didn't get to hear the introduction we did for you, Kurt, but basically we're out of time on the podcast because giving Kurt's biography pretty much took up the entire length of time today. Yeah, it's lengthy. <laughs> it's lengthy. Well, you know, just, just, all you have to just say is, um, you know, he's, he's a hard-hitting drummer with, uh, who likes to party with his friends in Red Deer. That's exactly what I said. And liked That's, the books wow. or liked the books at one point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're going to try over the course of this uh, episode to uh, delve into each of the things that you do, but it is a crazy amount. Um, but let's start off by talking uh, of probably your, your finest accomplishment. And that is what we have 14 sold out one bad sun shows in Red Deer. <laughs> is that what we got up to? Is it 14? Is that the number? Uh. Is, we got to ask Brennan. Where's Brennan? Yeah, I don't. It's a good question. Here. We've been wondering the same thing. <laughs> yeah, where is Brennan? We say yeah, his no. name all the time, but we never see him. I don't know what the. I think I, that sounds right. Cause I think we got over the, the unlucky thirteen and and made it to fourteen. I think, but um, yeah, it's pretty amazing, man. Like what a what a streak. And that's across different, like multiple different venues. Multiple right? venues. The VAT was in there a couple of times. I mean, the VAT is kind of where everything really kind of started. Yeah, well, I got a funny story about that later. You know how we the, the first place we played in Red Deer, which uh, was not the it wasn't as cool as the Vat. Oh, where? What well, was don't it? yeah, don't save it for later. It's like, yeah. You what, can't, what was? <laughs> what, what, we're we're biting. Okay. Um, well, it's funny. Like, you know, and it very much connects with with Bose. So every time you know you mentioned, and this is a great this is a great first topic to discuss. You know, you know we talk about like the sold out shows in Red Deer and before this call, like I, I just kind of put myself into standing into my, you know, into the past standing side stage at Bose, getting ready to go on stage to a sold out show. Cause I just really like mentally put me in the right mindset, you know, and that, that's as close to meditating as I get is, is putting myself side stage at Bose, you know? So, 
so Brandon can smile knowing that his venue is like my happy place in, in my mind, you know? Um, but every time I, every time we play it at Bose, and this kind of goes for any time we have a big show or a big event in my life, I would say, I always kind of put myself, I think about how hard I've had to work to get to, to, to that moment. You know what I mean? And, and all the, the shit, can I swear on this podcast? I, I'd be upset if you didn't. Okay. Um, you know, all the shit I had to get through individually or as a band, whatever, to get to that place, you know, and it's, I feel like it's just like, it's kind of one of the things I do in my life that just makes me feel really grateful about shit. Right. So anyways, at when I'm side stage at Bose, I always think back to our first show in Red Deer, which is at a place called The Zone. Do you guys, does that, does that place exist? It, it was up on the north end, I want to say. The well zone before was my like time a, in Red Deer. Definitely before your time, for sure. It was it was in the corner of like a little strip mall thing, right? Is that? Yeah, it was, it was yeah. horrible. Like way, <laughs> way north Red Deer? 77th, yeah, yeah. I think, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about, uh, I think. It, no, it became something else, right? It did become something yeah, else, okay. yeah. That's good, so I'm not going to offend anyone. It's, it's gone long. No. Well, when was that? How long ago was that? So it, it, was, it was years ago, and... Um, so let's let's guess. So we started touring, you know, two thousand and you know seven or eight. Wow. So, so like, and back in the day, I used to um, sort of sort of indulge a bit in terms of what I was sending out to bars in order to get them to to book us, right? So, I guess indulge is too kind. I, I just lied outright to the bars and said that we we do all these cover songs. I'd make up a list of covers that we did not do. Um, so the bar booked us, and it wasn't the bar's fault. Like I, I shouldn't badmouth the bar. It was just like they booked us thinking we'd be like ninety percent covers, and of course we were, you know, ninety percent originals. And back then, as you know, Pete, like our originals were heavier, and they also were not as good, you know. So, um, so we play this venue, and back then we're doing like three set nights, which is like, you know, that, that's a bit egregious, you know, like in terms like that's a lot of that's a lot of music, you know, especially when it's loud as hell and heavy. And so after the first set, I'm like, no one's in the bar except for our, our, as you know, very well, probably our most hardcore long-term fan, Craig, my best friend in the world, Craig is there smiling ear to ear. Like he always has since day one. And then there's like people trying to hook up with, with girls and playing pool. And no one, no one gave a shit about us. Like they, the, the, the crowd hated us. There's maybe, you know, 17 people there and, besides Craig, like 16 of them hated us, you know? <laughs> and um, the sound guy comes up to me afterwards, after our first set, first of three, and he's like, he's like, where are the fucking covers, man? And I was like, well, you know, we threw in that, we threw in Civil War. We used to cover Civil War by, by GNR. And he's like, well, that's not going to fucking cut it, man. Like you, you got to play covers if you're, if you're going to survive this night, you know? And um, we like, we just looked at each other and I think we started the next set. We only knew like five covers. So we were, we were, we were, we were after, right? Like we, we couldn't do it. Um, but in those days we just looked within, looked at each other and sort of like, I'm not sure how we like looking back now, I couldn't like the, the me of 2021 couldn't handle Like I wouldn't be able to get through that. Like playing, playing to a crowd that hates what you're doing. Mm. Um, I just, I wouldn't have the, the, the wherewithal to just get through it all. But back then we did it every time. And so long story short, every time I'm side stage at Bose at a sold out show, I think of that night and just, just, and that's why I'm, that's why I'm smiling half the time on stage. Cause we just, we have it so good. Mm. We're so lucky to be where we are. And so like, it's the polar opposite of the type of crowd that we get at Bose, whether you got a packed house, everyone's screaming for your originals, you know, we, it was just, 
those sort of contradictions uh, or this contrast really just like keep a guy grateful, you know? And you didn't have to lie about what songs you were playing to get on stage there either. <laughs> I didn't lie to Brennan to get the gig. That's I am right. curious though, like when you would, you know, say, hey, we're, we're, we play these awesome covers. Here's what we play. Were there songs that you knew would, you know, make them a little uh ease them like they're like yeah you're playing that bon jovi song yeah yeah well were there any like kill shot songs that you didn't actually play that you lied your way through to get on stage oh yeah yeah big time um and as a lawyer now it's kind of funny because like was what i sent was that legally binding or not i don't know <laughs> but uh, but you know it was like we did civil war by gnr and then i think we did mr brownstone or something you know and it's like but i would list like all the hits you know sweet child of mine okay. paradise city you know like don't cry um you know hey man you got to do what you got to do to get in in this industry as a band man mm -hmm. like we, we we had to get gigs and um what a time man you know i always look back in those days anytime we've got a big show as a band like i look back and just think of all the shit we've been through as as a band you know in particular like you know shane and hicks and i um and just i, I feel nothing but love for those guys because we, we've just been we've been through it all you know you know what's funny about all this too is covers eventually did become such a huge part of the obs set like i mean there's some legendary moments of fans just losing their mind with you know baba o'reilly and then psycho killer kind of took on your cover of psycho killer like really took on a whole life of its own uh yeah and, it's, and it's, it's one of our biggest songs i mean i think it is our biggest song based on spotify right like which is kind of crazy. You're right. So it's, um, and I, and, and like, and I do like, I love playing a good cover, especially when it's like, I feel like if you can reinvent it, make it your own, you know, if you're, if you're going to go just play the kind of a, the same version as the original, then like, what's the point, right? Like, um, which is why I think Psycho Killer really always stood out for me and for the fans. It's like, you know, it sounds quite different than the original. It sort of has been put through the OBS lens, you know, and um, the cool thing about doing a cover that, like everyone in the crowd, like it shows that you are a fan as well as the band, right? Just like the people in the crowd, it's like you're all on the same page, embracing this, yeah, Babel O'Reilly or, or whatever, right? It's, 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 it's pretty special. Now I do call bullshit a little bit on you guys not knowing covers, because I would bet that Hicks <laughs> could probably fill three full sets of Metallica covers, all on his own. Yeah, you're right, and. And then Shane and I would sort of like fumble our way through it. To, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, venues. I mean, you guys are, you know, especially going back to being a younger band, you know, out on the road, going to strange places for the first time. How important is it to have a venue that treats you fairly? Like, I mean, again, you're having to lie to get your way into these places. <laughs> you know, it's such a good point, man. Like, honestly, and as you can imagine, like we've been through, we've been to every kind of venue there is, right? Like, and I've said this on other podcasts and I'll say it here even more gladly. It's like Brennan and the people at Bose, like they treat us like, like nobody else. Like they're, they're the top, they're, they're the gold standard in terms of like artist treatment, you know, and uh, how, in terms of how a venue is going to take care of their art, the, the bands, you know, and, um, and yeah, I mean, it's like, it makes all the difference because, and I, I won't give too many examples of the horrible <laughs> venues, but like, you know, like a lot, in the early days, especially, I mean, we would drive, like we drive, it's the old uh, uphill both ways sort of uh, saying, you know, it's like we, but it was legit. Like we would drive 30 hours to Thunder Bay to make a hundred, well, no, 200 bucks. And then like split that four ways, of course. 
and we'd show up in the, in some venues, not just, I mean, anywhere, like you show up and it's almost like the venues like resenting you for playing, for playing their, their place. Right. And, um, that's just funny, right? Like what, what's the, what's the thinking behind that? I, I don't get it, but, um, and then of course, once you get to a certain level of success, then they, then all of a sudden the, the flip, the, the switch is flipped. Right. And it's like, then they really kiss your ass, you know? And, um, but you never forget, you never forget how they treated you <laughs> when you were a nobody. Right. And it makes all the, like, you know, it's just like, it's a, it's the little things, right. You show up at a bar, you're, you're tired as hell. You're, you know, you're just came off a huge drive and you get out of the van. It's like, I, I'm picture, I'm feeling what I'm feeling right now. Or imagine what I feel when I, when we get to, when we arrive at bowl is like, we feel like on top of the world, we know we're going to have, we're, we're starving. Brandon's going to bring out like a killer spread that's meant for Kings. You know, he's going to get, he's going to say open bar, whatever you guys want to drink. Um, which, you know, sometimes you got to watch out with the, with the such high quality stuff. Um, and then like, it just makes you feel like you're a King, right? Whereas, you know, again, the opposite can very much be the case, right? Well, the opposite uh, with that, you know, specific Thunder Bay story, 30, you said 30 hours splitting 200, but they're almost paying you not to go there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, T-Bay is funny because like, there's a couple bars there that know the bands have to play there because it's just like a gas stop. Like you're you're going from Winnipeg to Toronto anyways, so you have to come through. You have to come to our venue. Maybe that's why they're kind of assholes. Like they they just get and they get really good bands, like like name bands, because they just need the gas money. They're gonna drive through anyways, so might as well break up the drive and. Um, Crazy. But yeah, T, I, I won't get into T Bay too much. You know, there, I remember. <laughs> um, I remember there's like. I remember a couple of things about T-Bay. There's a great sushi place, which is like Thunder Bay. What? Um, great sushi place and a great strip bar. So th there you go. Oh, really? What more do you need in a town? There's uh, well, you <laughs> can just set up a residency there. <laughs> Forget <laughs> Vegas. We're, 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 we've got our Thunder Bay residency lined up. You've, you've got a brewery there that you like, right? Yeah, we actually, I, as you know, we moved my son out to London last year and Thunder Bay was a stop for us. And there was, uh, yeah, the Sleeping Giant. Like, I want to go back and explore that area a little bit more because it does seem quite beautiful. The Sleeping mm -hmm. Giant National Park and all that. Found a couple of breweries out there that were pretty good. Oh, I thought the Sleeping Giant was the strip club. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, no, that's not what you want out of your strip club. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's some, there's some branding issues there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, like you've been doing this, you said you guys started touring 07, 08. Um, when did you start school? Yeah, it's a great question. So it was, so OBS started 2004. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I, we actually did, I think we did some gigs like 2005, but it wasn't like, we didn't leave Saskatoon really. It was like, um, just like open mics and stuff in Saskatoon and, you know, so yeah, I was. I graduated, I started school 2003, graduated 2005. So, you know, like OBS started right in the middle of that, you know, and I remember like, and back then we were like, we were really heavy back then. Like, um, so I remember I got all like my law school friends. So I, I didn't know them. I didn't know them that well. Like they were just kind of new friends. I'm like, come check out my band. And like, you know, it's like everyone was just either a few people loved it, but most of them were like, man, like just look on their face, like, this guy is just screaming in our face and, and this, you know, I'm bashing away. Hicks is just, he was heavier. You know, it was like that. We were, that was the peak of our heaviness is how we started, you know? And I think some of our early fans, you know, the 75 people that were our fans at the time love that heavy era. And, and I, there's things I love about it too, but um, you know, needless to say that it didn't go over too well with the, my classmates, you know, they, we didn't, we didn't get, gain too many fans, you know, they weren't listening to you while spending, you know, 28 hours a day 
hitting the books? No, it, it didn't really fit, you know. So it's almost a chicken or the egg. What what yeah. came first, the passion for law or the passion for music? Oh, that's easy. Uh, music by far. Like so, I mean, music. As you guys know, anytime we we chat, music. Um, you know, whatever at, at at the radio station or just at uh, you know having a beer, or whatever. I mean, music has always been my life. I mean, well, as far back as I can remember, you know, um, and you know, I think. You know, I never I never set out to become I didn't have these big aspirations all my life to be a lawyer, you know, like some of my classmates at, at university were like they knew from like age five that they want to be a lawyer. Right. Which is like what? Uh, <laughs> so what, what went wrong with your childhood yeah, yeah. to have that? I could imagine. <laughs> or what or what <laughs> went wrong with ours. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, a, a lot of it's like, you know, they're they're, um, you know, sons and daughters of. Yeah of lawyers. Right. And I, you know, I come from, I think, as you know, Pete, like very humble background. Like my dad's a, was an auto mechanic and my mom was a hairdresser, you know? So, um, not no one in my, or even in the extended sort of doll family, like no one aside from my brothers went to university even, and there's definitely no law lineage or doctor lineage in the doll family. So, you know, I sort of, I guess I would say what happened is growing up, like in my, teens and twenties. Like I read so many rock and roll biographies. Mm. I don't know if you guys are big into, I mean, I know we've talked about some stuff, Pete, like I love that stuff. Like to me, that's, those are the books that I just soaked up and the kind of the common thread with all of my idols was that they were fucked over by someone in a suit, you know, like either a record label dude or, or a manager or, or a lawyer, they're all screwed over. And I, that really got to me. And I thought if I could go to law school, become a lawyer and, you know, be the guy that helps represent artists, I could sort of stop that, that pattern from happening. Right. And I could save, save my fellow musicians, but also selfishly save myself as a being in a band. Right. So that was sort of the, the, the thinking, like if I, I could become an entertainment lawyer, then I could help out my fellow musicians, you know, such a unique uh, perspective from, you know, any other musician that I've talked to in the past, it's just a very different, uh, day job i guess is is one way of putting it and it sounds like uh things kind of started ramping up around the same time right like i was reading that uh while you were in the the full weight of law school obs was also really making you know taking a shot at at, at getting bigger so i've i was reading about your sleepless nights either studying or writing music or jamming with the guys in, in vancouver i think or british columbia yeah it, it was the time it was interesting you know like um and I think this is an important part of sort of like whatever, like my story is like, you know, things didn't start. Well, they did start heating up in both careers, but it took a long time. Like there was a time. So I graduated law school. All my classmates are going to become lawyers and making big bucks and whatever. And I chose not to do anything. I, I didn't article. I didn't go to become a lawyer. I chose to tour the country with OBS. Right. And which sounds awesome. And, and but that's back when no one gave a shit about us. Right. So we would, that was the two or three years of just like touring the country, playing the zone, you know, playing Thunder Bay, playing uh grand Prairie who, you know, now when you play there, it's awesome. But back then it was like, we'd go there. And again, they wanted covers and the, the crowd hated us. You know, the crowd wanted one night, they someone was screaming for 
uh, Alan Jackson. Well, someone else is screaming. For us. <laughs> well, someone else, and in the same nights, like literally five minutes later, someone screamed for um, System of a Down. So like we were like, we were we we, we were damned if we, either way, right? Um, but so we did all this like. I took this time off and thought the band would make it, but it just wasn't our time, right? So that was 2000 and yeah, let's say 2007. We were we didn't have our first breakthrough, as you know, Pete, until 2012, right? With Scarecrows and the Red album. So I was five years too early. So I guess the, the important part of the story bit is that for a few years there, I was like, I was really, I went through like a real, I would say it was like a, a year and a half of like real depression, you know, and um because the band that i loved wasn't happening yet like we no matter how much i tried it wasn't happening we, we couldn't get get things rolling and then i wasn't a lawyer i wasn't you know i hadn't done anything in that world um i hadn't met jules yet my wife so i was like you know kind of bummed in that way like you know just not happy that way and it's just like we all lived in the same house we had the obs band house which was kind of legendary and that was cool but it was like a year and a half i was just like i remember just feeling like so unmotivated I, I used to sleep in till like one in the afternoon and just in my mind i was like well it's like you know at least i got some of those hours of the day out of the way which is like oh, so so opposite of how i am now right like i want to just go do good things and whatever right and back then i was yeah it's just a weird time so anyways to your point things started to take off later it just took like four or five years of working my ass off on both and then eventually they both started to happen right but uh in those sort of those rough years, I, I think I'd call it like the years in the wilderness. You know, I just, I didn't know, I didn't know who I was really. Right. And, and neither of the two things that I am known for now were happening. So it's, it's a good sort of, um, it's a good lesson just to stick with your, you know, stick to your guns, right. Keep doing your thing. It may not happen right away, but four or five years later, all of a sudden, boom, both things blew up and then here we are. Right. But I love that, that, you know, those times led you to take that moment to put yourself in that spot before you go on stage at a sold out show at Bose with that crowd chanting. Um, you know, maybe that moment isn't as sweet or as, as uh, prominent for you if you don't go through those times. Yeah, that's, a, I love that, man. And I think some bands, you're right. Like some bands blow up out of like, you know, they they get together and like three months later, they're, they're massive. Right. And what sort of perspective do they have? Right. Like to me, it's all about perspective. Right. Um, I think that's the same with Hicks and Shane. Like we, we've never gotten, inflated egos because we we've had to work our asses off for so long and i think that i think that's kind of what maybe is part of the obs success story is like you know um you know just we're humble dudes because we well who knows why but like one of the factors is we had to work so effing hard all these years to get where we are so we appreciate every single fan right so it's like you know we, we don't take anything for granted which i think is um I mean, I've seen it many times, as you guys have. Some musicians just go to their head, right? They just... Uh, oh, yeah. They, yeah. But I think it comes from your guys' roots. You know, you talk about your dad being a mechanic, and, mm -hmm. you know, Shane comes from a farming background, and, you know, Hicks's parents were hardworking and, and, you know, had the painting business. So, uh, and, and you guys just kind of that hard-working man's kind of band. And a DIY band, because no matter, I think... You know, honestly, I can't think of a time maybe outside of some of the stadium shows opening for Def Leppard and Judas Priest where I didn't see you guys tearing down after the show, right? It's always been you yeah. guys rapping chords that, you know, you got to wait. You didn't that. do that stuff for them? I offered a couple of times, um, <laughs> <laughs> but oh, I maybe I... wasn't in the right state to be uh, rapping chords at the end of a show, but. 
I remember like once you, when you mentioned Def Leppard, like that's still one of my fondest uh, memories as in OBS, you know. But I remember one time they, one of the Def Leppard guys happened to like walk by because, you know, the whole night, the venue was, the night was over and he was just walking, whatever, going for a walk through the venue and he saw us tearing down gear, <laughs> like tearing down our merch, you know, and he was, he thought it was like, it just took him back to his early days. And I won't do an impression because I've got a horrible English accent <laughs> impression, but you know, he was just like, he just thought it was like, he was really touched that, you know, that we're, that we're sitting there packing up our merch, you know? Well, I would hope it would be humbling for those bands as well, because mm -hmm. I mean, even Def Leppard at some point was a band that had to play in shitty UK venues where nobody probably gave a rat's ass. I mean, same thing with Def Leppard. It took them a couple albums before Pyromania hit and they blew up with big success, right? So they, they learned those yeah. lessons. Yeah, Joe, actually, one of my favorite things from the Def Leppard tour was um, I had just, I, I'd done my research because, you know, I always know that I can connect with pretty much anyone on music, right? Like, um, especially if you, if you have any liking of rock and roll that I can, you know, you and I can get along, right? That's the great thing about music. It's, it's the great connector, right? Like you could have two enemies and you could connect over music, right? And so with Joe, I was like, I just want to do my research in case we had a chance to chat. And on these sort of tours, it's not like you get to hang out with these guys backstage. It just usually doesn't happen, right? They don't want the opener to be like mulling around backstage trying to, you know, bug them, right? They want to just do their thing. But with Joe, he's a big uh, Ian Hunter and Mott the Hoople fan. And so, you know, I've got all of Mott Hoople's records and, and most of Ian Hunter's. So, you know, the one chance I had, it's like Joe was walking by and he wasn't rushing off to go on stage or whatever. And I just sensed that he was like, maybe he had a, a minute to chat. So I was like, Joe, Joe, how you doing, man? And I was like, hey, you know, Kurt from the opening act. And um, I heard you're an Ian Hunter. He's kind of like, oh, yeah, like, you know, just want to shake a hand and go. Or he probably thinks I'm going to ask for a photo because that's everyone does. Right. It's just they must get bored with that. But I just said, instead of that, I was like, I heard you're an Ian Hunter fan. And he just, it stopped him in his tracks. He was like, oh, mate, you know, that Ian Hunter's the greatest. And, and so we talked about Ian Hunter and how, yeah, in the early days of Def Leppard, like, you know, I think they were playing some pub in Sheffield, I think they're from. Yep. Um, and Ian Hunter came to the show and saw them. And it was like, still is one of the greatest highlights of his career is that Ian Hunter came and actually gave a shit in the early days before they had any hits. And, um, it's, yeah, like it, anytime you meet these people, same with like uh, Rob Halford. It's like I had a few good chats with him and you realize they're just like regular dudes. Right. But they work their ass off. They're incredibly talented. But yeah, at the end of the day, they're just like you sort of can see when, if you have a chance to have a good conversation, you can sort of see through and just see like the, the 15 year old rock and roll fan and everyone. Right. And I think that's like that's all of us. Right. That's what got us into the reason we're doing this podcast right now is probably because we all discovered rock and roll at a certain age and just changed our life right and um it's kind of a cool connector um i want so like you know you've, you've given us a pretty decent um history of your time with obs and the beginnings of law school and like in hindsight that's a long period of time you talked about a long stretch of uh despair we might be able to to use that word um in hindsight like it seems like everything's kind of worked out obs uh, has had an incredible run uh, I can only imagine you were still very busy when the pandemic hit and you couldn't play music and tour with your day job. Go ahead, finish that off. That's fine. We'll wait. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Was that, was that a question? <laughs> no, the, yeah, the, I wasn't sure. The beer takes precedence, that's for sure. Um, 
when you uh, when you tell people you're an entertainment lawyer, like as simply as you could describe, like what is that? I mean, you said you grew up, you wanted to get into law because you'd read about so many rock artists getting screwed over by suits and blindsided by legal things. Like, what what do yeah. you tell people when when they ask what that means? Yeah, no, totally. And I think it's a great question because for me, it's like obviously I, I live it every day, so to me, it's to me it's obvious. But I think you're right. To the average person, it's not like so. Basically. Um, you know, like I'm a, I'm just like a regular contract lawyer, but with, with cool clients, you know? Um, so like a lot of it's like negotiating record deals or management deals, or, you know, a lot of times like artists get the play, the songs placed in film and TV and negotiate those deals. Um, you know, it's like it, a lot of it's sort of advocacy too, like making sure that artists, you know, um, helping them with their careers. Right. That's the long and short of it. It's like, negotiating a lot of deals for artists but also being the person on their like every band or artist when they get to a certain level they've got a team of people like a manager record label booking agent and then entertainment lawyer and you know just helping being part of the team and yeah helping a lot of it's like in the pandemic i've seen so many record deals being thrown about and management deals being thrown about and yeah i mean basically helping negotiate those deals and get get artists to the next level in their career which is like to me it's so cool because you know you had like Tarek and the, the, from the blue stones on and um you know those guys are clients of mine and friends and a lot of the artists i work with like i end up becoming friends with you know and it's um it's just cool to see like i get to help people achieve their dreams right and that's to me like what a gift you know i've got i got two careers that i love and um you know, I just, I really, you know, I don't want to overuse the, the gratitude uh, term, but like, that's what it's all about, man. I, I feel super grateful every day. And I try to always remind myself of that, you know? So if you're doing say the average uh, record contract, like how big of a document are we talking here? Like how, how much uh, work good, goes into the doing that? Yeah. Good question. They're so different. Like, so, um, well, let's use a couple of examples. Cause you know, real world examples always help, you know? So I was fortunate enough to be involved on the tones and I deal like, yeah. um, and it's kind of crazy because obviously she's from Australia. I'm not from Australia and I'm not, I'm not called to the bar there, but it was kind of a cool thing. Like her manager was a self, uh, self, uh, anointed failed entertainment lawyer. Like that, that's how he refers to himself. He tried doing entertainment law sucked at it and gave up, but he started reading my articles on my website and my website, like it's kind of been a weird thing. Like, you know, I started writing articles in 2010, so 11 years ago, about things in the music biz that I didn't know, the, like I couldn't find the answer to, right? So things like what to look out for in a record deal or how much should you pay your producer in terms of uh, points? Like, and is your producer a songwriter? These kind of things. No, like lawyers weren't giving those, those answers out. And I thought, well, that's kind of lame. Like I wanna, I, I want these answers. So I went and started writing these articles and at first, like no one, no one cared, just like with OBS, right? No one cared at first. And then it, over time, it's like people just, the articles started g gaining traction because no one else was doing it. Right. So long story short now, I mean, the, I think we get, it's, it's crazy the amount of people that read the articles on my site. And it's, I, I mean that in a truly humble way, like I don't actually get it, how, it, how it's, you know, it's kind of crazy to see the people reach out from all over the world and be like, Hey, I love your site. Um, so tones and eyes manager, 
emails me and he's like, I, I read your articles every day. I've got this artist I'm managing that is starting to blow up, but like not quite like she'd only had like a couple thousand or a hundred thousand views on her song or whatever. Um, and he's like, can you help me negotiate her deal? I was like, sure. And so we had a few phone calls back and forth. You know, the deal she, she was getting offered was from America. So I can help. Cause it's kind of the same, same law basically. Um, and after about like three phone calls, I was like, who is, what's the artist's name? It's like tones and I, and at the time I think she had like, so by the time we got to that, it was like maybe at a million views. And now I think she's like, you know, dance monkeys, like a couple billion or something. Wow. It's like, That's crazy. It's like, it's That's just wild. silly. So long story short, she blows up. She's when we first started the deal, like started when I first got to know her at first, she was so broke and, and poor that she, she was busking like for food, like, like not busking for fun, but like busking for food, you know? Um, and within a matter of a week, like she blew up so quickly and then we got the deal. It was like a full on us bidding war. And that, to answer your question, Peter, I'm, I'm going, taking a short question and making a crazy long answer, but the deals that she was being offered were crazy, but they were massive deals. Like the biggest deals that I've seen as an entertainment lawyer, because she was so, it was like the biggest song in the world. So those kind of deals were like 40, 50, 70 pages sometimes, but we're talking and I can't say the numbers of course, but she went in a matter of a week's time, she went from being like absolutely broke to being a millionaire, you know, and, um, and never had, not just that, but like never having to worry about money again. <laughs> and so like, that's those, those moments where it's like, it just feels like you hear those sort of six success stories and they, the rags to riches stories, but you don't really to be a part of it and really see the, the impact. It was kind of crazy. And like just the magnitude of it, like she was just boom. So th those deals are massive because there's so much money involved, you know, like, so we're talking, yeah, probably like a 60, 70 page agreement, which is like, it gets pretty mind numbing, you know? I think we should say that, that I, and I've been spending quite a bit of time on your website, but lawyerdrummer.com, just Google lawyer drummer. You're not ever going to Google that for anything else other than Kurt Dahl's website. Um, <laughs> but you do make it uh, a, a very approachable place for, for I'm assuming what must be countless young professionals or wannabe professionals in, in the music industry. So, well, and I would imagine a lot of them too, is like they, you're relatable, right? Like I'm sure yeah. to the most part, bands are probably scared of lawyers for Unique the most perspective. part. Unique perspective. Yeah, yeah. You, you can speak on their yeah. level. Well, I think you're right. And I think lawyers have a bad reputation because of 97% of the lawyers out there, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's a big number. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, I don't trust most lawyers, you know, like to be honest. Right. I mean, I, and I often say, I don't really like, I, I, I am a lawyer. Obviously I, I feel like one, but I don't, I'm way more connected to the music biz than I am like the legal, like I don't hang out with other lawyers really. Um, it's just not like I'm more, I'm not connected to that legal world. I've always been an outsider and, um, and just more part of the music world. Right. Like that's where I, that's right. Like I would never want to go to like a lawyer event or something like, Oh God, shoot me, you know? And I'm going to, if I can plug another podcast on our podcast, I, ca I caught a couple episodes on you and uh, <laughs> the guys uh, from band of rascals that have that, uh, your band sucks at business podcast, it's which great. is great. Yeah, if there's anybody awesome. that's listening to this, any bands that are listening to this right now, and you know, we might not get quite into some of the ins and outs, uh, of, uh, of your profession for a band, go check those podcasts out because you get into quite a bit of detail on, um, you know, 
contracts and signing this and signing that and social media followings and all that kind of stuff. So and Band of Rascals have some pretty good, pretty good tunes too. That helps. Good guys. Yeah, they're great. Like they're super smart, you know. And I think that's like the I love what I love about them is like just they kind of show what you know. To me, that's what a, a, a up and coming band like you got to be smart. You know, I think the days of sort of just like being a rock star and partying and like and not focusing on like letting someone else handle all the business. Well, you can do that, but then there's a good chance you'll get screwed over by someone, right? Like it's, I'm a huge fan of like sort of self-empowering, you know? So here's, here's what I know and I'm going to share with you on my website. And then then at some point you'll need, you'll need my help. If you're, if you're getting a record deal offered to you, like you'll, you know, you'll you'll still need to hire someone who's, who's good at what they do. Right. Um, And I feel like I take what I do very seriously. Like I, I love what I do and I, and I always want to fight for, you know, get the best deal possible for my clients. Right. Like that's, that's why I do this. Right. So, but I think I'm still surprised that I still, sometimes I still find there's artists out there that don't want to like self-empower. They just want someone else to do all that sort of business side. And I say, that's cool, but it's going to cost you more because you have to pay people to, or, or you'll sign a bad deal and then it'll, it'll, it'll really cost you. Right. So, um, all I can do is kind of put put it out there and, and and let them take it for what it is, you know? So how do you take that? Like when you, you know, OBS is kind of at the height of things and you're touring across the, you're opening for Def Leppard and those kinds of things. You're playing sold out shows across the country and you know, the, the want to party and, and live the rock star life is there, but you have an eight o'clock call the next morning with the manager of tones and I, and you got to be on the ball. Like, oh, I can't imagine the willpower it takes to say, you know what, guys, I got to shut her down tonight. I got a pretty important 8 a.m. And 70 and, pages. And you got to, and 70 pages. <laughs> and you're on the road. Like, you maintain this practice while you're touring across the country in a van. Well, a couple of things. I, I would not, it would be a 10 a.m. call, not 8 a.m. I'd make <laughs> okay, sure that was at least 10, you know, like. Uh, and then, yeah, sometimes there, there, there was times where, like, it's tough where you're, in, you know, two, yeah, in a van driving around and sometimes like you're, especially if you're on an important call and like you, you go into like a low part of a, a valley or something, or, you know, like you're driving to the mountains and you're going to lose, you know, there's, there's no cell reception when you're going from like, you know, a good chunk of in BC, like in the mountains, you can't have a cell phone, right? So, or cell calls. So there was times where I was like, it was more stressful, like it was hectic and, um, yeah, I kind of look back. I look back fondly on those days because now it's like, well, we're not touring as much, obviously. And even pre-COVID, we weren't touring at, like as crazy as we did at one point. But yeah, there was there was a few years there where it was like, it was sort of, you know, I love the, um, I love like the in the Joe like in the in the Eagles documentary, Joe Walsh talks about how life when you're when you're in the middle of of something a crazy moment in your life. It just, it seems like total uh, anarchy, like total chaos, you know? And so when the Eagles were big, it, just, it was just like chaos, chaos, chaos. And then it's not until you step back and look at it years later that it looks like a, a fine, a fine piece of art, you know? And um, I, I can relate that to OBS. Like there's times there at OBS and the, the law practice where it's like, there's times there where it's just like some days were just so crazy, busy driving like all day, doing calls all day in the back of the van. And, um, but looking back now, it's just like, I look back and smile with, you know, cause it was like, w- what a crazy time. Right. And, and of course, like you said, it led to, it led to, to here. Right. So it's, it's, it was all worth it. You know, I want to pester you a bit more about the, the legal stuff. I, I'm sure you and I could talk for days about it, but your thesis 
Your master of law's thesis, as I read it, was how musical artists will make a living in the internet age. Um, yeah, yeah. And just yesterday, and I was a bit too young um, to understand what was going on with Lars and Metallica back in 2000, but yesterday, Corey <laughs> right. Taylor uh, was on another podcast talking about how Lars was, he was, he was right. Like he had every right to fight hard against Napster when he did, even though I seem to, at my young age, I seem to remember him getting a lot of flack for oh, it. Oh, there was a ton of flack for it. He was it, kind right? of made he fun did, of yeah. Right? Sure, yeah. The yeah. fans, the, you know, the fans kind of thought they were, yeah, he was against. I mean, I was uh, stealing it. Sure. Who wasn't? Um, at <laughs> yeah. nine years old. But like, so with that being your thesis, what, 10, 15 years ago, probably? Um, um, it, yeah. 2009. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's 2021. There are definitely conversations to be had um, about how digital streaming is negatively impacting uh, artists. Like, what are your thoughts today on on that whole situation? Yeah, it's a great question, and that's a you're right. We could talk about this for like three more hours. Um, so, and I guess first off, I think with the Lars comment, like or the Lars point, it, it's I feel like it was just a bad look for, at the time because the kids, like you and I, I mean we're ripping Metallica songs and, and we're young kids. We're broke. We, you know, we got nothing. And Lars is, you know, doing the interview from his mansion. And, yeah. and, and I, I won't do a Lars impression cause I'm not, I'm not good at impressions, but you know, <laughs> I, I like those that can do impressions, but you know, Lars is like, you know, complaining he can't buy as much expensive rare art because of this. So it was just a bad look, right? Like is this rich multi multi-millionaire complaining that young kids are taking his songs. So that was a bad look, but and I guess to some extent, you know, I mean, he's right that, well, I guess I'll put it this way. Like the genie's out of the bottle in terms of people aren't going to go back to like buying physical music. Like, yeah. I mean, guys like us all still buy vinyl, I'm sure. And you know, I still buy the occasional CD and that's all good. Um, but like, I think you're not, you're not going to sort of put the genie back in the bottle and go back to like physical, just like we're not going to uh, start buying DVDs again. Like, probably not you know like you used to have a big shrine on your in your living room of all the dvds you own well now you don't it's all just one button away right for for better or worse there's things i really don't like about that right like um i still have a record collection and to me like i don't like like something's lost going to digital there's there's no doubt about it right um but i guess what i would say now is and like i've seen artists like that make a lot of money from digital music you know what I mean? Like Spotify, whatever. Um, I think the real issue now is that all the money in the music business is being made by tech companies and not artists, right? Like Spotify, like whatever, Daniel Eck, whatever his name is, like, you know, he's, he says, like, he basically, de like, he devalues music, but then his company is worth however many billion, right? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, what's, what's the basis, what's the value in that company? Well, it's music. So it's like, there's an inherent disconnect there. And um, I think that's the world right now is that these te tech companies make all the money, whether it be Facebook, Google, Amazon, you, Spotify, you name it. And the, you know, content creators like musicians aren't making much from it. So uh, unless you're at the top, if, if you're, if your tones and I, like, I'm sure her Spotify checks are, are pretty massive. Right. But that's like the 0.001%. Right. I remember a few years ago, because I've still never used Spotify. I just, you know, I got a new phone and they gave me a free six month subscription to Google Play Music like five or six years ago or whatever. And just since then, I've stuck with it. But when people kept asking me, oh, you don't use this app, this app's way better. 
I remember actually finding an article breaking down which apps paid artists more per stream. And Google at the time was a bit more, which is not saying much because it was like 0.1 cent to what, like another point, a slight point higher than that. So it is, it, it still irks me a little bit that we've all just grown so accustomed to this, this new format. And, um, I, I believe that musicians have every right to kind of fight for more, but I, I just don't know how it's going to work out. Well, that, and that's the question, right? Like, what do you, uh, it is, I do find it like my overall opinion is like, we should get paid. Musicians should get paid more from streaming. Like to me, that's, but then how does that work? Like, how, how do you make that happen? I don't know. I mean, maybe the tech companies have to give more uh, of their, their bottom line or I don't know. But um, what I do know is that like in today's modern industry, it's like you have to tour your ass off to make a living. And of, co of course, great timing on the pandemic, you know, but um, so like, what about the musicians who don't want to tour? Like not every musician is a road dog, right? Like some, some people don't want to be on the road 10 months of the year. Cause you know, and I don't blame them, you know, I don't want to be on the road 10 months of the year. Um, so it's like, it, it, it's sort of, and then it also the, another one of the effects is that ticket prices have gone through the roof, you know, yeah. for at least for big bands. Like I think at, when, you're, when you're playing bows, I think ticket prices are, are totally reasonable. Right. But like, there's a reason why the stones are charging like a thousand dollars. It's because they don't make any money from record sales anymore. And Mick has to live that life still. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. $400 to see Dylan way back. <laughs> yeah. I, I paid that. I saw Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Dylan and it was like, and I love Dylan. He's my favorite songwriter and he's a shitty live performer. You know, like, <laughs> I've heard that um, from so many people that are so disappointed, especially in the last, whatever, probably 10 years or so. Yeah. I've not heard a single person say a good thing about Dylan's live show in the last decade. No. Well, he's definitely not coming on this show. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's, it, it's really, um, I guess people, it's really changed the industry so much, right? Like there, there's, it's although I will say this just to, to add a little bit of optimism, like I do feel because I see this on the, on the entertainment lawyer side, like there is a lot of musicians out there like doing quite well and, and getting good deals. You got to be smart about it. Um, you got to leverage like and in some ways, I think artists have more power and more control over the career th than they ever have. Right. So that's cool. Like I can see, um, you know, certain, I, well, I won't name names, but like certain clients of mine who back in the day, like in the, say the nineties signed these major label deals, you know, had to sell their soul, you know, didn't actually make much money from that, even though they had like million selling records. And now they can go out, you know, put out a record on their own or through like a small independent label and then make, you know, most of the money directly to them through the internet, whatever. And then they can tour and make it a bit easier, like kind of almost like a DIY approach and most of the money, like it's all within their control and that's kind of cool. Um, or like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots, there's lots of positives, but it's also like, I, I think at the end of the day, like there should be higher payouts when it comes to streaming for sure. Sounds like a messy time. Well, it's an interesting time. I, I wouldn't say, I mean, there's, that's just me being an optimist. Like, right. You know, like I feel I I've seen artists like do such great things. Like, um, there's this client of mine, Robin Ottolini, like she's country and she writes her own songs and she's just like, she's just like a legitimate talent, like a real deal sort of artist. And, you know, if this wasn't 2020 when she blew up, 
um, she would have had to go through the whole major label label bottleneck and you had to pretty much sell your soul to be on a major label and they would own everything. They wouldn't let you have opinions on, you know, the album artwork and, you know, even the song selection to some extent, but with her, it's like, it's all within her control. She's writing the songs, picking her producers, choosing the release schedule. And she's with a major label. She's with Warner in, in Nashville. So it's like, in some ways, like you can go out there and use, and I'm not on TikTok, uh, but you could use TikTok, Twitter, well, not Twitter so much, but Instagram, like as an artist, YouTube, Spotify, you can go, go out there and do it all yourself and create a buzz and then get the labels to come to you, which I think you could never have done in eighties, nineties, even two thousands. Right. So I think, again, there's a lot of things I would change about the biz for sure. But I think there's also like, if you're a hardworking self-empowered artist, like you can go out there and create your own story, create your own, you know, success and, and then name your sort of name your price in a lot of ways. Like if things blow up, right. Uh, that, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's still, it's always, but e even back in the heyday of recorded music, you know, it's like for every Motley Crue, Pete, there's like thousands of, of bands that were like wannabe or like, or there were great bands like Motley Crue, but never, never made it. Right. And they end up on the, on the boulevard sort of just, you know, or they sign record deals and then get, get screwed over. And like th these stories are so they really abound, you know, so it's never been easy to make it as a musician. Um, but in some ways now, I think a lot more is in your, in your control, which is to me like a real positive. Again, back to that, do it yourself. Well, and I keep, you know, I have to remind myself, we've done a few of these interviews now, and I'd say half of our guests have Patreons, which did not exist 10 years ago outside of a, you know, maybe a tip jar at the merch table. Now they've got a virtual tip jar, which you get rewards from, right? You can interact, they can curate content for your fans, so. And it's great as we brought up with a couple of those as well. Like, can you imagine of having had access to a Patreon to Nirvana or Pearl Jam in the 90s, right, to get that close uh, and, and personal, that would, would have been amazing. So, yeah, you're right. There's a lot to be optimistic about. I think with yeah. ep episode two with Kurt, we'll have to talk NFTs, <laughs> but we won't do that today. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I love it, guys. I, I could talk on this stuff for hours, man. This is what I love. Uh, I'm not going to let this go by. I'm For those listening, there's uh, uh, Kurt's in his – is this your living room that you're in, Kurt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's uh, the the I Annie Leibovitz picture of John Lennon naked oh, with his I leg didn't... wrapped around Yoko there from the Rolling Stone cover. Thought I recognized that. Oh, yeah. was it was it Rolling Stone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was the, one of the. I think that was close to one of the last shoots that he did uh, before his death for Rolling Stone. Uh, it's amazing that that's in your living room, and I know my wife would never allow that to go up in the living room. You so, have one though. Uh, well, I've got the I've got the Rolling Stone cover oh, okay, of that. Okay. Yeah. So shout out to well, Jules. It's... That's awesome. Well, like when my son Levon was like young, he was always like, "Why is, why is John Lennon naked?" And it, like he just didn't understand, he didn't get it, you know. And uh, is he is he being silly? And I was like, "Well, yeah, he's being silly, sure, you know." Um, but yeah, it's uh, we got a lot, we got a lot of like rock and roll things around the house, as you can imagine. All right, I love that. That's there. Very cool, Pete. Pete got his Motley Crue mention, and he got his John Lennon mention in, right? White Buffalo there. I What's just throw next? it out there. White and Buffalo, then right? <laughs> not, not wearing the white Buffalo shirt today. The trifecta. Yeah. And I it was one bad son because I, you're, you guys are honestly are the band that I've seen the most out of any other band. And I can't give you a number, 
because there's just so many, there were so many shows that, you know, that uh, era of, you know, whatever, 2012, 2013, when you guys were you know kind of blowing up in for the next four or five years was just so much fun and uh, sold out shows. Yeah. And we'd follow these guys around everywhere. And um, you were awful nice to us. Yeah. Pete had his <laughs> own, own touring going on. That's like uh, OBS gave you a reason to hop in a van with a bunch of sweaty dudes and travel from town to town. That's what you do. Right. Well, there was a, yeah, I loved it, man. You're right. That was sort of, that was such a great chapter in my life and in the band's history is like, yeah, that sort of time frame you mentioned. And, um, cause yeah, there was a couple of times there where it was like, I mean, I think it was many times, but you guys would do like at least what, four or five shows. Like it'd be like Sastoon. I mean, the Sastoon ones are cool. Cause you, you get to see us in our hometown, which is always awesome, but you do Red Deer, Calgary, Edmonton, you know, what else? You, I'm Lethbridge. Sure Left, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm, I'm sure there was a medicine hat in there. There was a white court festival. Where the hell um, were you when they went to the zone in Red Deer? Well, I wasn't around <laughs> at that. Just, no, that was that was uh, before my time. No, and, and you're <laughs> I, I wanted off. I wanted to wait for them to blow up a little bit. I didn't really like their cover of Civil War. That's when Pete was <laughs> still still asking bands to play Alan Jackson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, we definitely need to do a part two because there's so much stuff that, uh, you know, we could have still talked about and I'd love to talk about. I mean, the whole uh, getting things going with Scarecrows and how you guys attacked radio and, again, a do-it-yourself thing. We're going to have you on again, if that's cool. Yeah, well, hey, anytime, guys. Like, all like this, yeah. Lots to talk about. I'd love to talk about that stuff. I mean, yeah, the Scarecrows thing was so funny. It's like now it looks, again, just like with the, the Joe Walsh comment, like looking back, it seems like genius, but at the time, like our whole team was like, don't do it. Don't do it. You know? And well, we just did it and it worked. Right. And it worked well. Don't do what? Well, that's part two. That's the cliffhanger that leaves you, that leaves oh, you hanging God. for the next, <laughs> right. Podcasts have cliffhangers, <laughs> don't they? Unbelievable. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Cheers, Katie. Okay. Peace, Thank dude. you. Guys. <laughs> hey buddy. Okay. Much love guys. Thank you. Well, Pete, we we finally talked to your best friend. <laughs> no word of a lie. That could have been easily double the length and uh, would have been entertaining, informational the whole way through. Now, is it fair for me? And we haven't actually talked about this a lot on the podcast, which might, you know, m- m- some people might not know that we work in radio. Right. Um, I don't know if we've established that too many times. I think it's fair to say that you played a pretty big role in getting them uh, on the radio. At least uh, in these parts. Well, I would disagree with that. And that there's like you awesome, always do. <laughs> that, that they're awesome songs is what got them on the radio. But like we alluded to with Kurt a little bit, and, and I do want to save it for another time because it's a great story, but uh, they worked really hard to build connections with radio. Yeah. Um, I didn't deal with a tracker or a promotions person. or Like Kurt was emailing me personally every week. Yeah. Hey, man, if you hadn't listened to this song, give this song a listen. Give this. and Which uh, is usually and, done by someone else. Which should, is almost always say. done by somebody else. Yeah. And uh, and there's a reason for that. It's mm-hmm. that it gets it's you know, pretty successful, but that's the way it started. And uh, so it was just emails back and forth uh, on that song, Scarecrows and friendship kind of developed. And I believed in the song and somehow they weren't like, they still weren't too scared to show up in town and actually meet you. Well, I wasn't like, I hadn't (laughs) followed them from town to town at that point yet. They didn't know that they were gaining a stalker. Hey, I didn't say it. And I it didn't is, use the I, S you word. You know what? I will own it completely. Like, there were many nights where we would, uh, or, or you know, again, he's not wrong. We would go to Lethbridge. Yeah. We would catch the show in Calgary. Uh, again, I could not tell you how many times I've seen One Bad Son, but I can definitely say they're the band that I have seen the most. Wild stuff. Well, uh, thanks, Kurt. And again, I, I, I just want to stress lawyerdrummer.com. 
lawyerdrummer.com, especially if you're you're thinking about getting into music. And hey, as a music fan too, like uh, there's just there's interesting stuff that he puts out. Again, uh, we talked about the Led Zeppelin lawsuit a little bit there, uh, and and Kurt followed that a ton, and he's got write ups on that. So even at, yes, as a music fan, you will learn stuff. I think that lawsuit lasted like the entirety of my life. It was as well, pretty so. crazy. Yeah. Um, again, the road, the stage, follow us on social media. And, um, what do you do with that YouTube button? You subscribe. Smash it. I'm going to start going to all of our <laughs> listeners homes and checking to see if you're subscribed to the Bose Barn stage YouTube account. TV's turning off. I think it's time to go. They're shutting the lights. They gave us the, is it a red light or a green light? I think it's a red light. I think light. we're getting into the swing of this thing. We're starting to enjoy this. Yes, exactly. All right. Till next time. Bye-bye. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. Ryan? New episodes every Wednesday, 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 Wednesday. The Road, The Stage is produced by Ryan Cooley and Riley Suryin, recorded in Red Deer, Alberta, and in partnership with Bose Bar and Stage, Troubled Monk, and Tourism Red Deer. The Road, The Stage. <laughs>